0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Eric Lamar, a head and neck surgeon in the Cleveland Clinic Head and Neck Institute. Dr. Lamar is here today to talk to us about HPV-related head and neck cancers. Welcome, Eric. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So maybe to start out, tell us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. So I'm the uh, interim section head within uh,
1: for head and neck um, oncologic surgery and, and reconstruction um, within the Head and Neck Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And so I'm a practicing surgeon and deal predominantly with cancers uh,
0: of the head and neck. So certainly what we're going to talk about today involves uh, the head and neck, and that's HPV-related cancers. So maybe um, we have a very diverse group that might be listening in. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a, an overview of what HPV-related head and neck cancers is all about?
1: So I, I think this is a great topic because we're seeing almost an epidemic uh, within malignancies uh, of this type. So the first thing to start off with is what, what type of anatomy we're dealing with. And so I think it's important to distinguish oropharynx from oral cavity cancers. And so when we think about oropharynx, it typically starts at the back portion of the oral cavity. And so we encompass areas such as the base of tongue, tonsillar area, as well as the soft palate and and the posterior pharynx. So that's predominantly what we're talking about today. And that's in distinction from more of the mobile tongue and and the palate, which we consider as the oral cavity. So uh, maybe about three or four decades ago, oropharyngeal cancers were were largely uh, associated with Heavy tobacco and alcohol exposure. And so in the 1960s, smoking rates were somewhere on the order of 40%. And with the assistance of public health education, uh, it currently has fallen to about 20%. And so you would have expected kind of a concomitant uh, decrement in oral pharyngeal cancers associated with it. But in fact, we've seen a, a slight uptick of oral pharyngeal cancers. And within the last two decades or so, we've started to appreciate that this has been largely related to HPV infections. So, HPV derived oral pharyngeal cancers. And associated with that, we've seen kind of a, sh- a shift of demographics. And so, the conventional HPV negative malignancy, which we now designate, which is more associated with heavy tobacco and alcohol use tended to occur more in the 60 plus um, age range uh, affected both women and men and and largely African American males more so than white males. But what we've seen, um, particularly in the last decade, is kind of a shift in the demographics more towards um, 40 to 59 age range. It's this population, particularly white men, that we've seen an increase in oral oropharyngeal cancers. So almost a uh, 10% annual increase in incidence since the year 2000. And again, the the principal etiology of what's thought to uh, be responsible for this is, is human papillomavirus. So as, as we all know, HPV transmission is primarily through sexual contact and Oral genital contact, which can lead to oral and oral pharyngeal infection. And an overwhelming majority of HPV related cases are, are related to the subtype HPV16. Exposure to the human papillomavirus is, is exceedingly common, with an estimated point prevalence of anywhere from 43 to 62 percent. And it's been uh, extrapolated that there's uh, a lifetime prevalence of any uh, anatomic site infection being anywhere from 65 to 100%. So, men are more likely to have an oral infection than women, and and it has to do with the the density of of virus within the genital mucosa for women. Um, And then, factors um, that have shown to uh, lead to this increase um, incidence, particularly in men, uh, has been over the last few decades, uh, perhaps a a decrease in the age of uh, sexual debut um, and an increase in the number of partners, which may have contributed to a rise in exposures. Um, The risk of infection also increases with the number of oral and sexual partners, So the locations that we tend to see are more along the tonsil and base of tongue. And uh, just an annual incidence has been shown uh, somewhere around 2.6 per 100,000 patients in in the year 2005. And we've seen a a 5% increase in, in the percentage rate. So it's really shifted how we've thought about the disease process and really led for us to educate um, other clinicians in terms of differing presentations because it's been uh, a slightly different disease process than what we've conventionally seen with the tobacco and alcohol related oral pharyngeal cancers.
0: So, in terms of those differences, um, maybe you can let us know about the difference in sort of the biology and the um, where, what stage they may present at, the likelihood that they're less of a local um, tumor versus a, a metastatic disease. How does how is that different for HPV-associated um, head and neck cancers compared to the traditional tobacco and alcohol-related?
1: Yeah, so on on a more molecular level, the HPV-negative cancers are thought to be mediated through a lot of alterations in the p53. Tumor suppressor gene. Um, whereas uh, P16 is overexpression, is thought to be responsible for the, the pathophysiology of HPV mediated um, oral pharyngeal cancers. Um, along with that, um, we tend we tended to see a difference in, in terms of clinical presentation. So where HPV-negative cancers, you'll often find a prominent primary tumor that's in the base of tongue or tonsil or, or palate, and then that's associated with nodal disease uh, in the neck. HPV-positive disease, in contrast, will have very, very small primaries, and so it's hard to identify the tonsillar primary or the base of tongue primary and how they will typically present will be with nodal metastases. And so the characteristic of the nodal metastases will oftentimes be cystic, and that can lead to kind of a diagnostic dilemma at times um, because fine needle aspirates uh, will sometimes be equivocal um, and and that will need to to escalate in order to get a, a definitive diagnosis. So in general, the presentation has changed, but not only that, but the treatment responses have actually been more favorable. But we use essentially identical treatment modalities for both. And what we've seen is, is actually an improved local regional control if you do have an
0: HPV-mediated malignancy. You mentioned about the nodal presentation. Is part of this um, a lack of awareness by patients, uh, primary care providers being aware that that this may be uh, may be developing rather than getting that big bulky tumor that we saw in the past.
1: Yeah, I think there certainly has been a learning curve in the last decade or so, and and I think it's become more understood now. Um, but there still remains some education um, in terms of how this disease evolves. So as I as I instruct my trainees, particularly in adults over 25 or so, a significant lump in the neck is cancer until proven otherwise. And so I think there were other uh, benign uh, cysts, for example, like a branchial cleft cyst that were initially misconstrued as being benign cysts when in fact they were metastatic nodal disease. And so that's been educational for the the field to really Raise awareness amongst other clinicians what a, a significant lymph node can represent in, in this disease process.
0: So we uh, certainly there's the vaccine for HPV, and is it is it too early to be seeing an impact on that vaccine in the patients that are showing up in your clinics, or um, has there been a difference at this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think your first point is is right on in that um, the vaccine itself has only been approved since 2006. And so the time span from the infection uh, of the HPV uh, to evolution to a cancer is thought to be decade, even, even longer than that. So it, it remains to be determined what, what the impact will be with respect to the vaccine. But I think another issue makes it a little bit more challenging in that the, the compliance rates for the vaccine are actually not ideal. Um, When you look at the teens, for example, so the vaccine is indicated for uh, as early as nine, but typically recommended 11 to 12 with the vaccine, um, and then subsequently uh, a vaccine six to 12 months after that. When you look at compliance rates, it's anywhere on the order of 60% of receiving one dose and almost 45% of having both doses. And so when scientists looked at what it would take for kind of a community immunity, um, it's on the order of 80%. So those rates are well below that. So it's not only that the infection precedes um, evolution to a cancer, but it's also I think we're we're still struggling with optimizing compliance rates.
0: And then the initial focus was on vaccination of of girls, but then... Um, Can you weigh in on sort of the vaccination of of boys as well?
1: Yeah, I think the initial um, indication was for females, um, and that was a kind of a bivalent vaccine. And then uh, Gardasil, which is uh, quadvalent, or there's uh, there's actually uh, nine different uh, targets that Gardasil now has, is now uh, FDA approved for both. And so the age range is anywhere from 9 to 26 where it's recommended, and then beyond that is at the discretion uh, of the of the doctor uh, in conjunction with the patient, so up to 45 years old. But certainly, I think that led to initial, perhaps, misperception of uh, the virus itself, um, but uh, I think public health information has started to um, say that this is equally important for males as it is for females. All
0: right. It's, it's. It sounds like uh, vaccinating males and females and just getting the vaccine is going to be an important uh, continued push. If we uh, if we shift gears a little bit, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what are the treatment options? What does treatment of this look like?
1: So uh, we use the three conventional modalities: um, surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, um, in varying combinations. So for early stage. Cancers, And it's interesting that when we talk about staging, the staging system has evolved um, in 2018 and it has made a separate designation for HPV-related malignancy. Not to, not to say that it changes how we address the cancer from a treatment standpoint, but we've recognized it as a distinct uh, disease process, which has historically had better response rates to our conventional treatments. So I'll kind of take you through the evolution in terms of treatments initially. I would say uh, a couple of decades ago, surgery was part of the mainstay. Uh, This was before the 1990s or so, but it was quite morbid. It would require a a mandibulotomy and and, uh, very extensive, would affect swallowing and quite a morbid operation. And that was initially followed by radiation. But then with the onset of other sites within the head and neck, such as the larynx, we we saw the utility of organ preservation trials. And that's uh, in the way of concurrent treatment. So that was combined cisplatin with radiation. And that data served as kind of a focal point that was extrapolated to uh, the oropharynx. And so then we started to uh, employ them for base of tongue and tonsil cancers. And that's where we were in the kind of the beginning of 2000 or so. And then somewhere around 2009, the FDA approved transoral robotic surgery. So that's brought surgery back into the, the forefront a little bit and the, that's been the topic of a, a clinical trial presently. So that's the general uh, shift in uh, paradigm. I would say we, we generally treat early stage oropharyngeal cancers with radiation alone or surgery alone, and that's done robotically. Um, And then uh, kind of advanced stage is treated with concomitant chemoradiation, or you can use surgery, and we're trying to tease out what that role will be in HPV-related disease through a surgical clinical trial.
0: And so you mentioned the clinical trial and you mentioned robotics. Is the robotic surgery, just to clarify, is that only through a trial mechanism at this point, or is that also into some elements of standard of care?
1: It is within standard of care at present. So transoral robotic is FDA approved for tonsillar malignancies and base of tongue
0: malignancies. And specifically in HPV as well. Yep. Okay.
1: Yes. Um, but where where the clinical trial is involved is to see how those patients are risk stratified afterwards. And so to determine. So low-risk, intermediate risk, and high-risk, and looking at what adjuvant treatments are necessary afterwards.
0: And I guess, speaking of adjuvant therapies, you mentioned the, the differences in terms of nodal presentation oftentimes. Is, what, what is the change in terms of adjuvant therapies at this point?
1: We've used cisplatin in terms of the chemotherapy for, for years, and and that still is widely used Other clinical trials have looked at cetuximab um, in comparison to cisplatin. Um, Radiation therapy has evolved. Uh, Initially, we were doing external beam, and certainly IMRT has has really refined treatment and made it a a lot more focal. And so um, those are commonly used adjuvant treatments. But but where it becomes kind of interesting is what – I'll give you an example – what has been widely viewed in head and neck cancer is the the notion that um, when a lymph node has a cancer that spreads outside of the lymph node, we commonly employ chemotherapy in an adjuvant setting in conjunction with radiation therapy. And those results have been extrapolated to HPV-positive related malignancies. But we're starting to, to maybe recognize that that doesn't have uh, as much import for HPV-related malignancies, so that's been the, the the topic of some clinical trials moving forward, and be curious to see how that evolves um, in comparison to the more conventional HPV-negative related head and neck malignancies.
0: What about screening? What kind of efforts are under underway in terms of trying to find this at an early stage?
1: That's where a lot of work uh, remains to be done. I believe um, there is no recommended screening as of this time. I think it would have been nice to have something comparable to screening for cervical cancers like Pap smears, but the challenge within HPV oropharyngeal infections is uh, just infection itself doesn't necessarily imply causality, and so you could have the infection clear away. and And as I as I mentioned before the incidence of infections are are very high. And so we haven't really identified um, a uh, test that is uh, truly indicative of of a malignancy to to initiate screening. Another point is cervical cancers tend to go through a whole series of molecular and pathologic changes where they'll start from a dysplasia and evolve to, to frank carcinoma. And we haven't quite identified a corollary Uh, in the oropharynx to go along with that. So if we were to do that, I think it would perhaps um, lead to similar screening mechanisms that are used in in cervical cancers, but such a change has not been identified thus far.
0: So uh, to the physicians that are listening to the podcast, what type of patients uh, should be considered for a referral to the Cleveland Clinic for um, evaluation?
1: So I would, I would say uh, particularly males, but also females that are 40 and above, and, and I've seen them even earlier than 40, but 40 and above with a persistent uh, neck mass uh, that has been present for um, at least a, a few weeks. And so that's the typical patient that we see. They may not necessarily have other risk factors such as tobacco use or alcohol use. And so uh, those patients really need to see us for a biopsy and for appropriate workup otherwise. Uh, As I mentioned beforehand, the the fact that these HPV-related cancers have small primaries, it's hard to detect them from the standpoint of where their initial tumor uh, has arisen from. So that tends to be less symptomatic. But if it were to progress, that is to say that if the base of tongue cancers or the tonsil cancers were enlarged, you may have some issues with swallowing or slight uh, that could be subtle or, or, or drastic. Um, when you look at someone's uh, tonsils, you may have asymmetric tonsil, which sometimes could be indicative of a malignancy. Um, and so those are those are tips that um, I, I um I instruct my residents to, to keep an eye on and, and also discuss with um, uh, clinicians in the community.
0: So this is uh, certainly a potentially serious disease. You mentioned early that um, the incidence is increasing. What are the biggest gaps?
1: So I think the the one gap we've spent a bit of time addressing is uh, education to clinicians. That um, uh, initially what was missed Perceived as a bronchial uh could be more concerning in a um, patient that we conventionally did not think of being at risk for polymency. There's also the gap in in, in vaccines. Um, I think that has the potential for mitigating risk of this in the future, um, and in just a continued uh, generalized uh, education for. For both uh, medical professionals as well as community on the importance of uh, preventative measures and and vaccination measures for HPV and how it could lead to oral pharyngeal cancers.
0: Well, I uh, thank you for your insight on this uh, really important disease, Eric, and I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for your time. I appreciate the opportunity. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances.